all bad things. Tragedy. Tragedies, disasters. That's bad things. Trigger warning for everything possible. What? Hello. I'm David. I'm Rachel. And this is All Bad Things. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. You can follow us on all your favorite social meds at... Insta, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitch. Join our Facebook discussion group, our Discord, and our subreddit. Email us at allbadthingspod at gmail.com. And then our username is allbadthingspod on all the other things. I did it out of order. That's okay. <laughs> Do all of those things. Yeah. <clears throat> Just like I'm going to crack a beer and she's going to cough. Exactly. <laughs> we won't edit it out. Mm-mm. So, <clears throat> we are going to another listener script. Yep. And you are... Thank, thank you again to our listeners. Yes, and you're reading again because while I'm feeling much better, the cough is lingering and I have a feeling it's going to linger for a while. Mm-hmm. So, yep. I As the cranberry said, do you have to let it linger? song by the cranberries linger uh, okay yeah there you go mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes thank you to uh this script is going to be by mick mm-hmm. and it looks like we have some oh we do we have a couple of uh listener emails to yes. read beforehand so this one is from eric and it's regarding our um our episode where we did the selfies ah. the selfie related deaths um, or stop playing with your selfie. Yes. We, we discussed, um, the idea that cell phones can, uh, cause fires at, uh, gas stations as well oh, as that's if, right. yes. if yeah. you, you, um, go into your car and then slide back out and then touch the gas pump that's been running, it could spark fire. Yeah. So Eric, um, who is, <coughs> excuse me, um, in his own words, a librarian by training. Uh, I received my master's degree in library and information sciences in 1994 from the University of Texas at Austin, Austin Hook'em Horns. <laughs> um, Eric said, Dear David, Rachel, David, and Sarah, you are wondering if the urban legend of cell phones causing gas pump explosions was true or not. Well, your friendly neighborhood librarian is here to help. I thought I remembered hearing about this same thing on Mythbusters, but before I opened my mouth and taste shoe leather, I did some research first. And lo and behold, I found an article plus other links to the Mythbusters. The verdict is as follows. Do cell phones cause gas pumps to explode? Busted. They do not. So uh, does getting in and out of your car cause gas pumps to explode? Plausible. To quote Adam Savage... When you're moving in and out of your car, you're generating static electricity. If you feel a spark, that's usually between 10 and 20,000 volts of static electricity, which is wild. And that's plenty strong enough to make gas fume. And yes, when you get out of the car, touching the metal of the car will discharge the static electricity. Very interesting. Thank you, Eric. Um, And then we have uh, an email from N uh, with a, a... Comments on the selfie episode. Um, So something that N said in this that I really appreciated. They said, uh, uh, oh, sorry. She said, 
I also wanted to thank you for a comment Rachel made during the discussion prompted by David's quote, if I was a woman, I would probably just stay indoors all the time, unquote, comment. I'm not hating on David here, I promise, but he mentioned how as a man going for a walk in a park, he never feels nervous or threatened, whereas, quote, if you're a 100 pound woman, end quote, and Rachel interrupted, or just a woman. And she said, thank you. I am a five, five foot 11 inch tall woman. Not that my weight matters, but in my teens and 20s, I was super skinny. Now at the same age as David, shout out to 1977. <laughs> and after a couple of kids, I'm slightly overweight. My point here is that a woman who is taller and or heavier than average than the average woman is still a woman. We are still subject to the same dangers that smaller women face. I feel like one of the unfortunate consequences of trying to establish equality between the sexes is that it now seems taboo to say that men are stronger than women, but they are generally much stronger regardless of their size. Look at a chart of grip strength. Even the very strongest woman Women are nowhere near the strength of the average man, and often, depending on age, they are not much stronger than the weakest man. Men have greater muscle mass and testosterone, which gives them two to three times the upper body strength of women. Are there exceptions? Sure. Could Serena Williams beat Michael J. Fox at arm wrestling? Maybe. But my point I'm is... i go with a yes on that one. <laughs> sending the message that women and men are equally physically strong or that larger women are at less risk than a smaller woman is, in my opinion, dangerous. I have several female family members and friends who are around my height or taller, and without being specific, I can say that among us, there are women who have experienced rape, domestic violence, and other types of sexual assault and harassment. Aggressors don't always pick the smallest women as their victim. Who they attack can depend on time of day, location, opportunity, their own desires, preferences, urges, etc. Unfortunately, being a larger woman doesn't make you less of a target and doesn't make you able to fight off a man who can easily hold you down even when he's smaller than you. We must not send the message that larger or taller women should feel safe in situations where smaller women would not because that can lead them that can lead them to misperceive those situations as less risky or to be less likely to report an assault if it happens because they feel like they won't be believed or like they should have been able to fight him off. Women are just as smart, as capable, as mentally and emotionally strong, and as valuable as men. But ignoring the difference between physical strength can have serious consequences. That's all off my soapbox. Hmm. <laughs> thank you, Anne. Yes, thank you very much. So that's just um, kind of giving a perspective on why, like... If, it, if it's, uh, that's kind of why I said, like, or just a woman. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I understand that the, the idea that, like, somehow a smaller woman would fe maybe feel less threatened or something, but that's just not the case. Um, all, all women generally feel, uh, and, and are raised to feel afraid because, Demetrius. <laughs> Um, because there are genuine threats to us because we're women specifically. Um, and that's regardless of size. And that danger is still there regardless. Well, I mean, the Supreme Court is a threat to women. <laughs> so there you go. Well, yes, like I said, yeah. men are a threat to women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of things are a threat to women. Yep. Including internalized misogyny. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't sound like something that's uh, healthy. Put it that mm -hmm. way. Tis not. So this is, um, again, a listener script by Mick. Mm -hmm. And this is the sinking of the SS Admiral Sampson. And this uh, occurred on the 26th of August, 1914, 
at Point No Point, Puget Sound, Washington, USA, so the Seattle area, mm-hmm. and with a death toll of 12. This is uh, kind of the golden age of uh, ship sinkings, the Titanic sort of era. Yeah, because the Titanic was 1912. 12, I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, if we had actually researched it and done it, we would know. <laughs> <laughs> so <many laughs> other people have done lots and lots of research mm-hmm, on, the, on the Titanic mm-hmm. and, and have been to the frickin' bottom of the ocean to see it, which is something we'll never do. Uh, so, Dear David and Rachel, this script differs from my usual Teutonic offerings. Before I moved abroad for law school, I grew up in a small town near Seattle where this disaster took place. It is unfortunately little known now, even with the community, though the wreckage still lies at the bottom of the Puget Sound with an easy sight of the charming little white lighthouse that sadly failed to prevent the ordeal. Oh. It also highlights an interesting period in the region's history. In my opinion, what makes the SS Admiral Sampson so interesting is, in part, its time period when Seattle was booming as the jumping-off point for the Klondike Gold Rush and a robust oh. timber industry, as well as growing in importance for naval defense. It occurred during a time of pivotal change for the region, with Seattle growing to become the major metropolis and developing rapidly, while rural areas across the Puget Sound were still very much underdeveloped and often accessible only by boat. The Mosquito Fleet, though not particularly long-lived, was a unique phenomenon that allowed for a surprising amount of mobility, despite the isolation and undeveloped nature of these communities. The Mosquito Fleet? That's what it says. Huh. That's interesting. A fleet of mosquitoes. (laughs) So the ladies were dressed in elegant long skirts and delicate shirtwaist blouses. Their hair piled atop their heads in the style of the Gibson girl. Ah, do you know who the Gibson girls are? Mm -mm. (coughs) It's like a famous, um, I think it was advertising specifically, but like a very specific famous look around this time. Like, um... Well, this is topped 1910s. off with large hats, so you're talking mm-hmm. about like the silhouette kind of look a little bit? Yeah, like bit. the cinched in mm-hmm. waist and yeah. the, the updo yeah. hair and, and like hats. porcelain skin because we're very racist. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so topped off with large hats, parasols ready to protect them against the golden summer sun. That's why they were so pale. Sure. <laughs> Children are in Ballsward, Seattle. It yeah, it's true. It's get a, a ton of sun cloudy. there. Uh-huh. Uh, children darted around about in short pants and boots or drop-waist cotton lawn frocks, while the men, no doubt, found their three-piece wool suits stifling in the summer heat while they oh. waited on the Seattle waterfront to board the SS Admiral Sampson. Okay, so yeah, that's something I've always wondered about. Like, And it's not just in this era. Mm-mm. It went through the 50s and, and 60s, and even now some men wear suits during like the summer and for business and stuff. It's like why haven't we just done away with that? It's just not very comfortable. No, Especially in the middle of the summer, I can tell you that. And wool, no less. Well, oh. that would be even worse. Exactly. I mean, way worse. So, yeah. <coughs> so the steamer was docked at one of the city's main piers, and perhaps they were eager to catch one of the cooling, salty breezes that would make the late August temperatures more bearable. In the background, the sights and sounds of the busy city were a stark contrast to the natural beauty across the Puget Sound. As jackhammers drilled and and automobiles and delivery wagons clogged the streets, the sight of the newly completed 500-foot-tall L.C. Smith Building, now known simply as Smith Tower, gleamed as an ivory beacon of prosperity and progress. Seattle's first skyscraper had opened not two months prior, and it symbolized the industry and the wealth that the Klondike Gold Rush had recently brought the city, the jumping-off point to Alaska. 
You know, this is not our first Seattle disaster. Do you remember our other one? Uh, the joke. Yes. Uh, the uh-huh. local TV or uh-huh. whatever it was. Yep, the April Fool's mm-hmm. Day prank about um, uh, the tower. The, the, no, that the, the space needle yeah. had collapsed. <laughs> and Alaska was the intended destination for those waiting on the pier. Juno, to be specific, and the 160 passengers boarding the ship were traveling for diverse reasons. To meet family, to return home from seeking medical care in the metropolis, to seek their fortune, to begin new jobs. The trip would take a few days, but it was a well-traveled route, and the seas were calm at that time in the year. With departure scheduled for 4 o'clock a.m., passengers likely had a night to settle into their berths at the dock while final sailing preparations were made. Little did they know, not all of them would ever reach Washington State's neighbor to the north. Thanks. Seattle in the Puget Sound, 1914. So we're going into a little history corner here, Mm -hmm. it looks like. So first settled in 1851 by the 22 members of the Denny Party. Not the Donner Donner Party. No, no. (laughs) Or it would have been the uh, five members. Yes, I was going to say, that went way worse. (laughs) Than whatever the Denny party had to go through, I'm guessing. Do you know we still haven't done the Donner party? No, we haven't. That's yeah. that's another one that's, eh, yeah. we'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to that. 300-something, who knows. <laughs> so by 1914, Seattle had become one of the U.S. West Coast's major cities with an economy based upon timber, shipping, and those tight links to Alaska. With the coming of the Klondike gold rush at the close of the 19th century, the city had become flooded with those headed for the gold fields, and the economy boomed as boarding houses, outfitters, and passenger steamships popped up to meet the burgeoning demand. After a devastating fire that destroyed the downtown business district, uh, though with only one death, in 1889 the city had rebuilt in brick, producing a cityscape of confident Victorian buildings that were both fire-resistant and represented the city's ambition. The fire also created the famous Seattle Underground, with the new city being rebuilt atop the foundations of the fire-damaged ruins. What had been street level was now the basement, with the street and new and new buildings constructed a good ten feet above where they had once been. How interesting! I didn't know about right? that. Yeah, this would seem a strange idea, but the city had been plagued by the tides pushing sewage back oh. up through plumbing for years, and this was an easy way to raise buildings up. Yeah, yeah, because there's already a foundation to do so. Yeah, uh, and prevent that smelly nu- uh, nuisance. Ugh. Yeah, I'm sure. Oh God. Yuck. Yeah. Well, everything smelled back then anyway. But yeah, just the, oh, yeah, yeah every, everything, everybody. Yes. Every, everything smells. Yeah, everything smells. <laughs> For a time, pedestrians were forced to use ladders to reach shops and streets from old wooden sidewalks that still lay oh, wow. in what had become deep trenches. Ew. Eventually, these sidewalks were capped off with new sidewalks above, creating oh. a, um, a warren of old storefronts and pedestrian avenues under the city which were used for storage as brothels and later huh. as speakeasies, yeah, huh. which is coming very soon after yes, this uh-huh. incident. Seattle also, like being a, uh, a fan of the Prohibition area, Seattle is flooded with Prohibition money because of the, yeah. easy, because of the easy access to Canada. They're just, fucking, oh, they're yeah. just going to mm-hmm. fucking Canada back and forth all day, mm-hmm. every day. So yeah, people got rich as fuck yeah, that makes in sense. Seattle during, uh, during the Prohibition era. Uh, so in 1914, L.C. Smith's shining white 38-floor tower became the first skyscraper and by far the tallest building in the region, featuring seven elevators and an observation deck on the 35th floor. That's yeah, that's pretty impressive for a building for in 1914. Yeah. Built of steel, granite, and terracotta, it marked the <laughs> new era in Seattle and the entire region, beginning to shift from a regional powerhouse to a major city <coughs> on the national stage. While Seattle... 
engaged in rapid development by building glittering majestic buildings, constructing canals, and leveling pesky hills, smaller communities across the Puget Sound inhabited a different world. In 1855, the governor of Washington Territory, Isaac Stevens, convened at a prom- uh, promontory to the west of Seattle called Point No Point. Okay, hold on. <laughs> We've got Demetrius. Yeah. Demetrius. And I didn't realize Jesse was in here. Do you want to stay? You can stay. Say hello. Okay, thank you. As long as you earn your keep. Mm-hmm. Through entertainment. Uh, so see. Point, oh, point no, no point. point. Okay. Okay, yep. so it's like point lookout, except it's point no, no point. point. <laughs> That's funny. So named due to its appearance at a distance, seeming much more impressive than up close, Stevens gathered with 1,200 local Native Americans to sign the Treaty of Point No Point. <laughs> so funny point no point the treaty translated from english into chinook jargon laid out the terms demanded by the european settlers for the occupation of the lands of the kitsap and olympic peninsulas chief among these demands were the stipulation that slavery amongst the tribes was to be abolished that the tribes would only trade with the united states no longer allowing them to continue ancient traditions of trading across the border in canada which the tribes saw rightfully as an arbitrary border that did not align with their kinship links and cultural boundaries, and the secession of their lands in exchange for small reservations along the Hood Canal. Like similar treaties, there was no room for discussion or compromise, and despite hesitation from tribal leaders who saw the injustice of the terms, through coercion and intimidation, the treaty was eventually accepted by the following chiefs and tribes. That sounds familiar. Um, The the Sklalem tribe... The uh, Skokomish tribe and the Chimansum tribe. Very good. This treaty uh, opened the densely forested lands and fish-laden waters of the wider Puget Sound region to European settlement, and immigrants arrived to make their homes in the area. Many of these new arrivals came from Scandinavia, attracted by the landscape that reminded them Mm. of the fjords back home. Without the railroad and the influx of Klondike cash enjoyed by Seattle and hampered by the landscape, these communities would remain small and deeply isolated. Tucked along the shoreline in inlets and bays, these villages and hamlets were only accessible by water and would remain so for nearly a century. Wow. <laughs> so with Seattle a booming port and critical link between the mainland USA and Alaska, the Puget Sound was bound to the sea from the very beginning. Connected to the Pacific Ocean by the Strait of Juan de Fuqua, that forms the that arbitrary U.S. Canada border. The region's inland waterways linked to Seattle, linked Seattle to the outside world, but also these small communities on the peninsulas to Seattle itself. Huh. As settlement increased on the western side of the Sound, a fleet of ships was needed to link people to each other and to the city. Enter the Mosquito Fleet. Oh, okay. So now we learn what the Mosquito Fleet mm-hmm. is. Not a fleet of literal mosquitoes, I imagine. <laughs> Not a. Uh, <coughs> not by the sound of it. <laughs> not at, yes, not at this point anyway. <laughs> that could be happening later. <laughs> so like mosquitoes on the water. The mosquito fleet developed by the closing years of the 19th century and would remain critical infrastructure to the region up until World War II and the rise of the automobile. Huh. While not a single fleet in the tra- traditional sense, many private companies operated these vessels. The steamships of the mosquito fleet coordinated their timetables and routes. With service to every town and even the smallest of villages, these ships crisscrossed the water, shuttling people, mail, and goods. Every community had a dock, and even today, the remains of these docks are often visible, especially at low tide. Hmm. Mm. 
A steamship leaving Seattle in the morning might make nine or ten stops throughout the day. Wow. As it worked along its route, anchoring for a night before retracing its steps the next day. That's that's a lot. Yeah. With so many boats and so many routes, everyone could find a sailing that worked for them, and uh, the, and the uh. vessels became lifelines for those living in the rural, air, rural areas. Mm-hmm. So named because of their incredible number and swarming appearance on the water, the Mosquito Fleet oh. provide an invaluable service and clocked two million passenger trips in Two million passengers annually, but it wasn't without its problems. Well, yeah. Of course. I mean, it's 1914. <laughs> and, yeah, just if you, that sheer amount of boats that you have, like, something's... Something's you know, going to go wrong, yeah. yeah. In the night of November 8th, 1906, the steamship Dix set sail from Seattle. <laughs> okay. Is it D-I-X? D-I-X. Yes. Okay. <laughs> set sail from Seattle en route to Port Blakely, uh, directly across the Sound on Bainbridge Island, just off the coast of Kitsap Peninsula. Okay, I just I just want to point out that uh-huh. if somebody was going to um, take that ship, they would say, yeah, I'm riding dicks tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm sailing dicks. I'm sailing dicks. It is a route still serviced today by the Washington State Ferries, a route where one never loses sight of either landmass and which today takes only about 35 minutes to complete. On a clear night and in calm seas, the Dix was being operated by First Officer Charles Dennison with Captain Percy uh, Lamond off-duty at the time of the wreck that was to occur. Mm. Dennison, unlicensed to pilot a vessel in the inland waters, ran the Dix into, into a mosquito fleet steamship, the Genie. He, he ran the Dicks into a fleet? He ran the Dicks into Genie. <laughs> <laughs> so, within five minutes, the Dicks split in two. <laughs> Sinking to the bottom of the Puget Sound, <laughs> taking at least 45 souls with her. That's oh, okay, that's part. not funny. Their bodies never to be recovered. Oh, no. In 1913, the larger genie would herself be lost, and it was common for crew members to fall or slip overboard and drown while carrying out their duties. Oh, no. But the most famous mosquito fleet wreck is likely that of the Callum, en route from Seattle to Victoria, British Columbia, when she lost power and took on water in a storm. In 1904, her lifeboats were unable to be launched successfully, leading to the loss of 54, mostly women and children. Perhaps the column deserves her own episode, but I digress. Yeah, all all of this, each one could be. There's been a fire that that was in here. I could put that in there. Mm -hmm. Despite the dangers facing the crew and passengers of the Mosquito Fleet, there was one safety feature available quite early on. The Point No Point Lighthouse. Oh, okay. Take a sip of a beverage, which I didn't even... Uh, thing to plug, by the way. Oh, yeah, what you drinking? I am drinking a Brew Prince <coughs> beer. <laughs> Briar Patch Wheat. Briar Patch Wheat. Would you like to try? Sure. I know you're not up for your own, because you're just going to be drinking cough syrup all night. Exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. mm, yeah, not mm-hmm. bad. It is not bad. Just a little water break. <laughs> so the Point No Point Lighthouse. So recognizing uh, the importance of the marine route from the from the Pacific through the Strait of Juan de Fuqua to Seattle. Early... Oh, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Can, just to picture Juan de Fuqua. The can Strait I... of Juan de Fuqua. Can I see it? Fuqua. How it's written? Yeah. I'm not no. sure. Oh, okay. I yeah. gotcha. Mm-hmm. Uh, that yeah, Fuqua. <clears throat> yeah, it's it's Fuqua, a tough it's a Fuqua. tough word to say. Yeah. The only reason I knew how to pronounce it somewhat was there was uh-huh. a Pittsburgh Steelers player that that used to, that was his last name. It's F U C A. Okay. Fuca. 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 This is how it's Fuca. It's just okay. hard hard to say. Yeah. Uh, so, 
so recognizing the importance of the marine route uh, from the Pacific through the Strait of Juan de Fuqua to Seattle, <laughs> early territory leaders also recognized a challenge to safe navigation. Mm. A shoal in the waters between the southern edge of Whidbey Island and the aforementioned Point No Point. With no viable alternative route, the decision was made remarkably early to provide a lighthouse in the area. Okay. I, I see where we're mm-hmm. going with this. Mm-hmm. Initially, it's treacher- treacherous waters, basically. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, all water is, and especially well, yes. you you throw some shoals in there, that's just... Now, just to clarify, mm-hmm. what is your not... Like, when I think shoals, first of all, I think muscle shoals, but that's a recording studio. Basically rocks. <laughs> basically rocks in the water that you can't really see. Yeah, that's what I was kind of picturing. Yeah. This, and this, and like... that they're always there. I mean, there are shoal maps, there are shoal markers in the water, especially like where, oh, okay. where, we, where we grew up, like especially uh-huh. in, in the Thousand Islands. There are <coughs> rock formations in the water, un, indisguisable, because they're just below the water. They're like a couple feet below water. So it's not like far down enough Mm-mm. that chips don't need to worry about no, it. They're very shallow. It's high up enough that okay. you can fucking rip your engine right off your boat, gotcha. which plenty of people have done. It sounds like that might be an which issue my, here. <laughs> which my dad did twice in one day. Oh, what? The propeller, yeah, ripped it. Really? In shoals? Yes. Or on yeah, rocks, I guess, the, yes. This is when we went camping. Oh, no, twice and, uh, in one day. One day. Went out and bought a new one. Oh, no. And then, and then ripped that one. Chewed too. that one up. Oh, and no. then, then they took the first one that they chewed up earlier that uh-huh. day and filed it down to make it somewhat functional. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That oh, happened. man. <laughs> it was not in the same spot because that would be really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. But it did happen twice in one day. Oh, so, my goodness. Uh, These cats. These cats today. Yeah, just have him. Okay, yeah. look, you need to go. You need to go, Demetrius. Yeah, go ahead. Go. Come on. Riveting for the audience, <laughs> I'm sure. Everybody loves the cat. Mm-hmm. Bye. And the uh, litter box is going to go off at some point. Oh, jeez, yeah, it is. So. <laughs> well, we'll pause when that happens. <laughs> yes. Or we can pause now and just run it manually since it's smells Yeah, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and so. we're back. We're back. <laughs> So initially to, initially to be sighted at the extreme northwestern tip of the Kitsap Peninsula on the aptly named Foul Weather Bluff, <laughs> it was eventually decided to place the light on Point No Point itself, and construction commenced in 1879 with the light becoming fully operational in February 1880. The very first lighthouse in the Puget Sound, Point No Point, was then uninhabited except for the lighthouse keeper, a Seattle dentist by the name of J.S. Maggs. Okay, so they had a dentist as a lighthouse I guess keeper. so. He was just a fan of lighthouses, I guess. <laughs> well, a fan I guess, of lighthouses and teeth. I guess it's not always a full-blown profession yeah. for everybody. With no dock and no overland access, Maggs had to fetch supplies from Seattle via rowboat or by rowing out to cargo literally dropped off by passing schooners. Oh. Indeed, when his wife and children joined him at the newly constructed keeper's house, they had to begin a homestead to ensure supplies, even during winter storms. A garden was planted, and a cow was lowered overboard from a ship, <laughs> with the animal swimming ashore to her new home. Oh, well, that's that was very obedient of the cow to know yeah, where to like, swim. Hey, I'm going this way. The lighthouse still functions today, though it was enhanced with a radar tower in 1975 and fully automated in 1977. While serving as an important navigational beacon, it is also now a county park developed by day trippers. Hmm. With this historic keeper's house now a vacation rental, oh. oh, the lighthouse itself is a small museum. How interesting. Prior to COVID, it was open from April to September on weekends and holidays, with tours given by volunteer do- docents. 
Mm-hmm. After the lighthouse was established, Scandinavian immigrants began to slowly settle nearby, leading a small village being founded across a shallow bay from the light station. Named Hansville, uh, the village and lighthouse were only linked by water until 1908, with passage on foot only possible at extreme low tides prior to the building of a mm-hmm. one-mile-long road. Hansville was settled uh, by fishers and farmers, and a dock and large boathouse were built to provide access for Mosquito Fleet ships. So next to this dock, a small co-op grocery was opened in the 1920s, forming the Business District. A small white church was built across from the store on the inland side, nestled against the saltwater marsh in 1900, and a schoolhouse was added to the hill to the south around that time. Today, the schoolhouse has long been converted into a private home, and the church and store have been joined by a small post office and an auto repair shop. Hmm. Until the 1930s, Hansville <laughs> had no road connection to the rest of Kit- to the rest of Kitsap Peninsula, when an unpaved road to the south was built. <coughs> With this road came much easier access for both supplies and people, and while the area remained very rural, in the 1940s it allowed the community to capitalize on the stunning natural beauty, rich fishing, and proximity to Seattle leading to a period where Hansville uh, became known as a popular sport fishing resort, catering to well-heeled Seattleites with a penchant for the outdoors. This is where my family's connection to the area originated, with my grandparents, both Seattle doctors, and their colleagues purchasing summer homes on Foulweather Bluff. Sadly, by the late 1960s, declining salmon stocks led to the death of the tourism industry, and by Mm. the 1970s, all three of the main resorts had closed, leaving the boarded-up cabins, disused docks, and a fleet of brightly colored but abandoned skiffs in their wake. Hmm. Today, Hansville retains its natural beauty, and locals still eagerly await for the opening of crab and salmon season in the summer. Some of the old skiffs have been purchased and restored, and in the summer, uh, one bobs in the water in front of my parents' house, Hmm. belonging to our longtime neighbor. The village is occupied by perhaps two-thirds of the residents year-round, with the remainder being summer and weekend homes. Mm -hmm. It serves as a bedroom community to nearby towns, and the occasional resident braves the hour-and-a-half commute via uh, via car and ferry into Seattle. Oh, wow. That that, would be a brutal commute. I mean, I'm sure it's a lovely place to live, Mm -hmm. like, for the scenery, but, like, work remote. Yeah. While the region is famous for rain and can suffer from hurricane force storms in the winter months, summer takes a long time to arrive arrive each year, I, yeah, I imagine. Do you know I've only been to the Pacific Northwest in the summer, hmm. and it is I've never been gorgeous in the summer, I will say that. But the thing is, it's, it's like lush and beautiful and bright green and all this because of all the shitty months. <laughs> sure. You know, all that rain throughout the year, mm-hmm. the, the rainy season... Is what makes it so pretty in the summer. So, yeah. Yeah, June each year is dubbed January, and the local <laughs> saying reminding us that it's not really summer until the Fourth of July. Huh. However, the summer days are long and uniformly sunny, with a morning fog providing the moisture needed to keep the flora lush and green. Mm-hmm. But it is also this fog that can make the Puget Sound so dangerous. Oh, of course, no. especially it was. So now we've got Rocky Shoal, Shoaly, if that's a word. Shoals, Rocky Shoals. There you go. And um, uh, and fog, and a lighthouse that has something to do with all this. Though I guess we'll find out. I think we're gonna find all that out. Yes. So Puget Sound's weather patterns. As a child, I was always terrified of the 500-foot-long Washington State Ferry capsizing or sinking in a Mm. storm, when waves bash ships about and the winds drive icy rain into every nook and cranny, Mm. soaking and freezing raw whatever skin is exposed. 
should you be caught outside in them. Yeah. While the ferries have never had any sinkings, a couple have bashed into docks, and in recent years they've become famous for losing their engine power while underway, the Puget Sound has a few characteristics that make it particularly dangerous should you be caught in a foundering ship. I feel like this is um, akin to, because these these places, these prominent bodies of water, have like their own patterns and their own e- like ecosystems, kind of weather patterns and stuff like that. Reminds me of the Great Lakes and um, oh, sure. especially the information that Nicole has given us in her scripts. So oh, yeah. this is this feels like that type of information that Mick is giving us about Puget Sound. And it's so interesting that just like. It's not just oceans that have their own, no. like, behavior. Mm-mm. That's interesting. So the most dangerous part of the Puget Sound is its temperature. Hmm. Even in the warmest summer, uh, even in the warmest of summer months, it is rare for the waters to have a, rise above 45 degrees Fahrenheit. Jeez. That's fucking cold. Well, I'll tell you, the beaches that I've been to in the mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest, they are not swimmy beaches right they are like rocky cliffy and just like you stand and look out onto the water like nobody is there with beach chairs so, and sounds like a it's real, not a miami beach sounds like a real hoot <laughs> it's very pretty it is <laughs> i'm sure very it is pretty. i'm sure it is um yeah so the most dangerous part is the temperature being uh never 45. rising above 45 degrees in such conditions, hypothermia is fast to set yeah. in, and every year reports of deaths come in from all around the region, spiking in the summer months when vacationers and locals alike oh. take to the water for fishing and boating excursions. And then fall out or something. Yeah, all sorts or... of things. And I bet it can sneak up on you, too. If, it, if oh, it's warmer course. outside, <laughs> it can feel super cold in the water, but you may not get a real sense of how cold it actually is. Yeah. So in addition to the freezing waters, the aforementioned storms have been the end of many a ship, mm. including the Clallam. Even today, ships continue to be lost in storms severe enough to reshape the coastal landscape. On October 28, 2003, the 60-foot-long fishing boat Marty went down in uh, heavy seas in Skunk Bay. Miraculously, no lives were lost that That's night. Good. Even during summer when storms aren't a worry, the weather still provides the hazard of fog, ranging from pea soup thick to wispy and ethereal, a navigational buoy off of Foulweather Bluff was installed sometime around World War II, while the lighthouse at Point No Point featured a fog bell from the very beginning. Mm. Until a state-of-the-art uh, Debo foghorn was installed in 1900, lightkeepers would manually ring the bell with a hammer during periods of low visibility. Jeez. I'll tell you, that's, that's something that I'm not uh, comfortable at all driving in because I have so little experience. Every once in a while here, we'll get like a a really thick fog in yep. the morning. It's very rare, but it still happens still occasionally. Happens. And I'm always just struck by how like, I'm like, what, what, what do I do here? You know, because you can, you know, you put on your lights, go slow if you need to, whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, and you, you cannot trust just... people in front of you to have their lights on, right. you know? Yeah. yeah, you're constantly looking in front of you and trying to stare at the center line at the same time. Yes, to... it's very tricky. Yeah. So the final hazard of the Puget Sound is the one that befell the dicks that November night in 1906. Uh, traffic. In 1906 traffic. I don't think they meant to put a semicolon there. <laughs> During the times of the Mosquito Fleet, the waters were swarming with schooners, clipper ships, steamships, and fishing boats, making collisions a real risk uh-huh. in bad weather. Today, the port of Seattle and to the south, that of uh, Tacoma, are still some of the U.S. Lar- U.S.'s largest shipping hubs. Uh, 
Hmm. And one of the U.S. Navy's largest bases is also in the Puget Sound <coughs> region. Today's steamed <coughs> stream of cargo ships, tankers, cruise ships, ferries, fishing trawlers, submarines, aircraft carriers, and sailboats are constant in summer and only slightly diminished in winter. Luckily, with the radar tower added to the light station, the risk of collision has been dramatically reduced That's in the good. last 50 years. So now we are on to the SS Admiral Sim- Sampson. Okay. I'm going to keep saying Simpson. I know I will, because Sam- okay. Samson Simpson. It's, it's pretty close. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> one, one letter off. <laughs> yeah. The sound of the SS Admiral Sampson's steam whistle and engines would have been welcomed by passengers aboard even at the pre-dawn hour when it pulled away from the Seattle dock on August 26, 1914. Captain Zimro Moore stood on the bridge, taking stock of the conditions. With fog blanketing the water and smoke from a forest fire in the mountains adding to the haze, he slowed the ship to a speed of three knots, ordering the whistle to be sounded frequently and posted extra lookouts on each deck, all prudent decisions given the circumstances. It would slow the beginning of their journey considerably, but Captain Moore was experienced and took his responsibility to his passengers and crew seriously. That's good. Although it's apparently not going to help in the end, or at least not prevent, ultimately. With the ship moving at walking speed across the glassy surface of the Puget Sound and the whistle jauntily alerting any nearby vessels to her presence, and it took nearly four hours to cover the distance from the pier on Seattle's waterfront to the waters off of Hansville, where the lighthouse's beacon was unable to slash through the murk, but whose fog trumpet was clearly audible. Mm. Uh, Clean Booyer, on on her way to teaching a job, in uh, Ketchikan, uh, Alaska. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. We've was, heard of Ketchikan. Yes, we, we <laughs> have a postcard. Cold. Yes, we yes. have a postcard from there. Was woken <clears throat> by the sound of the whistle and foghorn and would later recall of that morning, quote, I feared something was wrong, so I arose and peeked out. Boer said of the ship's whistles in an account published later that day in the Seattle Star newspaper. It was fearfully foggy, but the steamer was still moving, so I concluded everything was all right and climbed back to my berth. Mm-hmm. Hardly I... Was I back when I heard and felt a terrible crash? Oh no. Unquote. Oh no. So. That's not good. Let's get on here. So that crash was the much larger Canadian luxury liner, oh, the no. Princess Victoria, nearing its dis- destination of Seattle after departing from Vancouver, British Columbia. Within seconds, and with the grinding and cacophony of tearing steel, the Princess Victoria's bow, bow slashed a fatal 12 foot wound amidships in the Admiral Sampson's. Mm. With the bluffs of Whidbey Island less than a mile distance, uh, distant and the shore of Point No Point easily close enough to swim to, Captain Moore immediately sprang into action, along with the captain of the Princess Victoria, Patrick J. Hickey. Immediately, both ships sent SOS messages, picked up at 5.48 a.m. by the steamship Admiral Watson, which reported she was off of West Seattle and would immediately detour to assist. So this but is it's, it's uh, going to be hard for anybody to get there with that fog. Right. Well, I mean, it's going to take time regardless, Yeah, you got, you got to try. Yeah. You know? Well, of course, yeah. So, at uh, 5.48, Princess Victoria SOS, stand by, we are in collision. Admiral Watson, all right, if you need assistance, give your position. Princess Victoria SOS, this is at 5.52, so four minutes later. Okay. We want assistance off point, no point. Admiral Watson, okay, we'll be there to help. So, this okay. whole thing is going to be... like a transcript, be, yeah. It's mm-hmm. going to be between... Princess Victoria and the and Admiral Watson. Okay. So I'm okay. going to stop reading that okay. part. <laughs> so at 5.55, uh, to Admiral Watson, what is your position? 5.57, off of West Point Light, Seattle, at 
505 hours. We'll arrive soon. At 558, what is your damage? Are you in collision with Admiral Sampson? 559, we are lowering boats. That was coming from uh, Princess Victoria. So, so life probably boats. To, yes, mm-hmm. for their own passengers and probably to help out. Yeah, it, like sound, maybe. it sounds like the... Well, because it was a cruise ship mm-hmm. or a cruise steamer or something. Luxury liner. Luxury liner. Um, hitting a ferry, essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's a lar- very large boat. <laughs> so it was probably okay. It's probably the Admiral Sampson that's... Well, there's a 12-foot the gash in it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's Damn. it's already... The ship itself <coughs> it's gonna pretty be much lost. done. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's a race to just rescue as many people as possible. Yeah. So... Captain Hickey kept the Princess Victoria's engines running and the ship accelerating slightly forward into the collision in an effort to plug the gash oh. in the Admiral Simpson's side long enough to allow for a successful evacuation. Oh, how interesting! So they're just—it's just like to plug the hole. Yeah, I guess that's the best. Somehow, like, like option. we're gonna lo- we're gonna lose this thing anyway. Yeah. So let's get as many people as we can yeah. off the ship in the meantime. Hickey's crew immediately began lowering ropes to hoist women and children aboard while men aboard the Admiral Samson jumped into the water and swam for the lifeboats that his crew launched to pick them up. In like 45 degree or less water. Yeah. That's, yeah. At best, it's 45 yeah. degrees. Uh-huh. The quiet shock, the weeping, the screaming of children, it is all too easy to imagine the rescued passengers crowding onto the Princess Victoria's deck yeah. in the chill fog, so cruelly and traumatically jolted from their sleep in cozy bunks just minutes before. A group of 20 iron workers migrating to Juno for jobs aided for ad- aided the Admiral Sampson's crew in assisting women and children from the sinking vessel, waiting until they were safe before seeking safety for themselves. Oh, very admirable. Less than 15 minutes after the first SOS message, Captain Hickey's men noticed a fire had broken out below deck. Oh no! Fed by barrels of fuel aboard the crippled Admiral Sampson, her main cargo. Uh, In communication with Captain Moore, Hickey reversed reversed the Princess Victoria away to prevent the fire from spreading to his ship and endangering all those rescued and the passengers already aboard. The frigid waters of the Puget Sound flooded the engine room, sealing the ship's fate. Yeah. And this is at 6.02 that this happens, so... It's, this is all within an hour, right? Mm-hmm. Like it was, or was it a little less over, than that? A little over an hour. It was five-something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we are in collision with Admiral Sampson off point, no point. She has sunk. Hmm. So that was the Princess Victoria to Admiral yeah. Watson. Captain Zimro Moore and his 20-year-old wireless operator, Walter E. Reeker, had worked to spread the distress signal and evacuate the passengers. When sharing their position with nearby ships, Reeker was repeatedly urged to save himself and, abo- and board the Princess Victoria or a lifeboat, uh-huh. But the youth categorically refused, instead determined to do his duty and save as many as possible uh-huh. without regard for his own life. After all nearby ships had been alerted and the SOS messages distributed far and wide, Reeker had made his way to the deck to launch the only lifeboat uh-huh. that would set sail from the Admiral Sampson, aided by Captain Moore, who would cut the ropes with his knife. As the fire spread, the few aboard the ship knew that there was no escape, neither from drowning nor from deadly hypothermia. Ooh. As the Admiral Sampson began to tilt, Reeker and Sampson were spotted on the bridge, hands reportedly raised calmly in farewell as the, oh. wild, as the water silently swallowed them. Oh my god. Jesus. As ironworker J.H. Varley later told the Seattle Star newspaper, we were none too soon, for the Sampson turned her nose down into the water and made as pretty a dive as you ever saw. There wasn't a splash to speak of. We're none too soon. Hmm. In total... 
Out of 160 aboard the Admiral Sampson, only 12 were lost. That's that's remarkable. Nine crew and three passengers, mm. including the passengers, which were Mrs. Ruby uh, E. Banbury. She was a newlywed. George mm. Bryant, a printer, and John McLaughlin. And the crew was Captain Zimro Moore, Walter E. Reeker, uh, L. Cabanas, uh, Mary Campbell, C.M. Marquist, Alan J. Noon, A. Sater, um, John G. Williams, and Ezra Byrne. So, the aftermath. Oh. So, the Princess Victoria steamed into Seattle at 10 a.m. with all survivors of the collision safe aboard in a three-foot hole near her bow above the oh, waterline. Oh, okay. So, but it was above the waterline. Mm-hmm. Okay. And crowds gathered at the dock after hearing the news of the sinking and rescue. In the following months, the maritime community mourned the loss of Captain Moore, a longtime fixture of the Puget Sound and Pacific Northwest shipping community. Venerated as a knowledgeable member of the Old Guard. Hmm. Overwhelmingly, uh, maritime publications and general newspapers alike were in agreement about how such a low death toll had been avoided. Despite the low visibility, freezing water, and rapidly spreading fire, the actions of the captains and crew of both vessels had acted calmly, quickly, Mm -hmm. and were clearly well practiced in what to do in case of an emergency. Moore and his men had immediately realized the severity of the danger of their ship was in, and had sprung into action evacuating their passengers in an orderly manner, their practice saving them precious moments that they did not have Mm -hmm. to lose. Hickey and his men had sprung into action using both ropes and their own lifeboats to evacuate endangered passengers, and Hickey himself was credited with keeping the Admiral Samson afloat long enough Uh to make rescue possible by using his ship as a plug to prevent a catastrophic flood of water into the Admiral Samson, only pulling away once the fire caused it to become untenable to hold this position any longer. Yeah, that's quick thinking to, because your initial um, reflex would be, oh, get, you know, you crash, so separate. But it, it's sort of like um, when they they say like if somebody gets a puncture wound, like don't pull out the thing that's right, leave uh, it in. Yeah, yeah, because it can actually help staunch the bleeding. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So a lawsuit was filed by the Pacific Alaska Navigation Company, the owners of the Admiral Sampson blaming the Princess Victoria and her owners, Canadian Pacific Railway, for the loss of the ship. Alleging that the Princess Victoria had been sailing too fast for the conditions, the Pacific Alaska Navigation Company would would then be countersued by Canadian Pacific Mm -hmm. Railway Mm -hmm. for libel, claiming $670,000, which is $19.8 million today, in damages. In the end, the two companies compromised and agreed that the incident was due to to mutual fault and asked the court to determine com- compensation instead. In 1917, U.S. District Court Judge Jeremiah, ne- Jeremiah Netterer awarded $17,509 in damages to Pacific Alaska Navigation Company and $16,065 in damages to Canadian Pacific Rail- it's Railway. It's a wash. Yep. Equivalent to $519,681 and four hundred and seventy-six thousand. dollars Eight hundred and twenty-two dollars in two thousand twenty-two, respectively. Yeah, that's not worth the the legal no, battle at no. all. <laughs> the sinking the sinking was widely known throughout the Puget Sound area, and the Seattle Star made the prediction that quote legions of mariners will, when passing the spot where he went down to his grave, mm-hmm. offer a silent prayer to Captain mm-hmm. Moore, a hero and a gentleman who has met his fate as a true master mariner. Unquote. Sadly, this was not to be. Oh. The remains of the dead would not be recovered, and the site of the sinking would essentially be forgotten as well. 
As the Mosquito fleet slowly died off as World War II and the rise of the automobile led to an expansion in roads and the development of the Kitsap and Olympic peninsulas, commercial passenger travel would lose its position of dominance on the water as well, with even the critical and much-used Washington State Ferry services of recent years paling in comparison in number of routes and vessels. Though not ridership, the Washington State Ferries logged 17.3 million passenger trips across 12 routes in 2021. Hmm. Only in 1991 would, they wreck finally, would the wreck finally be located using sonar wow. by divers Gary Severson and Kent Barnard, and in 1994 they would use a two-man submersible to be the first to explore the wreck. Hmm. Inhabited by octopus and many species of fish oh. and covered in sea anemones... Uh, anemone? Yes, anemone. Thank uh, you. I can never pronounce that. It's a tricky one. Anemone. Uh, the Admiral Sampson lay on the clay-covered seafloor. Several artifacts were mm. recovered, including silver coffee urns, brass portholes, the ship's whistle, and telegraph machine. Huh. The ship's safe, long rumored to contain gold bullion, and a diamond necklace along with the ship's payroll records was not located. Huh. These artifacts, along with a trunk belonging to John McLaugh- McLaughlin and his wife and five children which washed ashore a month later after the sinking, are the only tangible evidence of what occurred that foggy morning. As of this writing, no memorial has been constructed to those, to those lost in the disaster. Wow. And that was the sinking of the <coughs> SS Admiral Sampson. And we have some photos as well. Yeah. That's pretty pretty sad. It is sad. I want to flip through those. All right, so the, this is um, the topography or mm-hmm. the map of the area, which is helpful. Yeah, pretty uh, pretty tight so. navigation. Yes. Just looking at that. Mm-hmm. At that map. Well, there's a lighthouse. Point That's no point. Nice. Yep. Mm-hmm. I still like that point no point. Oh, Hansville Grocery and Provisions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the old boathouse. Oh yeah, that's more. That's looks like it was an old old dock, maybe. Yeah. Oh, this is um Mick's parents' place. Oh, okay, okay. Mm-hmm. That's pretty. That is an old photo of downtown Seattle. Yep. 1914. That's downtown Seattle at the mm-hmm. time. Yep. Oh, that that must be the um, yep, the Smith Tower. Uh, Puget Sound there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a, that's the ste- the Princess Victoria, the liner. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's the Admiral Sampson and passengers. That must. I was boarding. gonna say that must be all the passengers getting on. Or... Wow. Well Jeez. done, Mick. Thank yes. you. Thank you very that's... much. That's really sad because it it's, it's sad. one of those, um, it was just treacherous conditions and it sounds like everybody, like obviously those captains were not trying to hit no, each other. No, 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 no. It was just poor um, visibility. Yeah. And uh, and then they, they reacted completely correctly and probably saved hundreds of lives as a result, which is amazing and really sad. Yeah. But consider considering what happened, that it was only 12 people. Yeah, that's a low death that's, toll for something that terrible. That's pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, when we were starting to get into it, I was like, did you say at the beginning it was only 12 dead? Yeah, I, was like, I know. Because it seems like it should be a lot higher uh-huh. than that. It, it does from the description of it, for I mean, sure. obviously, thankfully, it was not. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. Wow. Yeah, and Seattle is just one of those weird places that... I, I guess I didn't realize how populated it was even, you know, we're talking over 100 years uh-huh. ago. Mm-hmm. But it's also one of those places that it's so barren and so kind of out on its own. 
that the people that live in that area just kind of never leave. You know what I mean? I don't know. I'm not sure what the... Um... But it's like... Because it's, it's sprawling. It's right. not that it's all on its own. But I know, like, for professional sports leagues, and uh-huh. I, I know for, like, bands touring, like, uh-huh. going to Seattle was going, like, so far out of anybody's way. Mm. Like, it was kind of pointless. Like, that's how... Huh. Um, it's not all that far from Portland. It's no, but it, it was drive. but it was just even going... It was like, if you're on tour or something like that, uh-huh. you're just going to fucking go to California. Why are you going to go all the way up to Seattle? Well, and the then, West Coast is yeah. so, so big. Long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so is the East Coast. It's just that the East Coast is so heavily populated. Mm-hmm. The whole length of it versus the West Coast, it's... They're, huge population centers but then there's also right. just stretches where there's of nothing much smaller towns yeah. than um than the east coast where you're hitting i guess to, i guess to an, ex- <laughs> to an extent where i grew up is kind of that way oh <laughs> uh, well yes you're well yeah. not not a metropolitan area no. not even close no um and very disconnected from but definitely but definitely disconnected like I, I felt a sense of connection to the people yeah. in the so i'm like yeah. yeah i know what it like what it's like to fucking grow up and nowhere uh-huh you know yeah definitely <laughs> and when you tell people of your existence they're like why <laughs> <laughs> why are you doing those things why do you shovel your driveway at <coughs> uh, five o'clock in the morning after mm-hmm. the plow has been through mm-hmm. because if you don't it's gonna freeze over and you won't be able to get your car out yeah and fuck all that <laughs> <laughs> i'm guessing the last time i did that was probably like when i was a senior in high school Man. It's, it's been a long time it's but been a little bit but it it can't ever be long enough <laughs> having to fucking do that shit no way man well thank you mick that's and everybody who has sent in scripts especially the past uh few weeks you know i'll tell you um we're recording this on saturday before it comes out and tomorrow which is sunday is january 22nd which will be a month to the day that my grandpa died and i swear to christ i don't know what the fuck happened this past month like it's been the weirdest blurriest just went by. shittiest month yeah. yeah it feels like it went by like that and also like it's lasted six months yeah it's it's bizarre to think that i got back from miami just a couple of weeks ago or a few weeks ago mm-hmm. it all feels weird yeah so i'm still and then and then i got sick right away this is fucking obnoxious so I've I've just not been myself, and it's been so helpful to just be like listener script time. Yes, <laughs> very very helpful. But we are both um, working on topics that so our our research is coming up too. Yes, we will get some in. We will. But in the meantime, keep sending us scripts. Yes, always. <laughs> thank you. Please uh, and thank you. Yes, you, you know you know our motto. <coughs> we will read them eventually. Yes. <laughs> it, it might take a couple years. Might. It might. Indeed. <laughs> it might take a reminder here and there. Yes, that can happen Hopefully too. Hopefully people that have sent in the scripts like three years ago are still, still listening, listening. <laughs> and, can, <laughs> and can tell us. <laughs> right? Oh, man. But yes, thank you again very much, Mick. That was... That, yes. I mean sad sad story yes very sad but very well done and but uh again interesting a, connection too a common story in an area that depends on boating Shipping, yep. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly all right so that was the sinking of the ss admiral samson this has been another episode of all bad things i'm rachel i'm david we'll see you next week <laughs>